It's six years since Netflix debuted The Crown, a drama about the British royal family. It was set at the beginning of Queen Elizabeth II's reign and incredibly the woman we saw becoming the Queen in 1952 was still on the throne. Season five arrives shortly after her death, which of course took place last September with an all-star cast featuring Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, Jonathan Price and Johnny Lee Miller. The royal saga has now reached the 1990s and the War of the Waleses, also known as the very public implosion of the then Prince and Princess of Wales's marriage. I'm joined uh, here in studio by Lise Hand and Richard Aldous joins us as well, both of whom have been watching season five of The Crown. They're all outraged, Lise. They're all given out. The Crown and how true to life it is. Judy Dench, even John Major have dismissed major plot lines in this series. <laughs> We're in a drama. Yeah. But we're in a drama that's dealing with kind of history and very recent history. What, what, what are the, if ethics is too strong a word, what line should we be following on truth, drama, history here? Well, I think it, you know the early ep- the early se- seasons were all about they were almost like historical dramas, whereas now we're almost up to contemporary times. A lot of the key players are still not only just alive, but a lot of them are still in public life. So there's a huge amount of pearl clutching and various people coming out, like John Major saying, you know, some scenes were injurious and untrue, and uh, Tony Blair's spokesman person was saying, you know, complete and utter rubbish and so on. And now whether that's genuine outrage or whether they're trying to signal very strongly that they didn't leak anything mm. uh, from any meetings uh, is, you know, is is open to question, I suppose. But, you know, I my attitude to this would be all docu... Like, it's a docudrama and all docudramas take massive liberties. You know, they, 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 they do. They just sort of hang... There's a framework of historical mm. truth upon which the director and the writer and, you know, the cast, you know, hang interpretations or, you know, invent conversations and so on. So, you know, and maybe I'm also looking at it from the point of view of an Irish person because, you know, The Windsors has always been a soap opera to Irish people. You know, kind of sort of Southwest Enders, maybe, if you want to sort of, you know, say Buckingham Palace. Right. So, um, you know, you can kind of yeah. look at that and say, sure, look at, okay. you know, can, okay. can be outrage. Uh, um, yeah, uh, Richard, you were, I think I heard a little snort of, of <laughs> laughter in the midst of that, perhaps of derision. I'm not sure. Um, well, I, you, was, I was just, to be honest, Sean, I was just thinking that it's not just a soap opera, an opera for uh, anybody who's Irish. It's a soap opera for anyone who's British. And, and as far as I can see with the, the whole Meghan Harry thing for mm. pretty much the rest of the world, too. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a, there are several seasons of this to go on. Um, but you, I suppose, Lee's coming out and it was interesting, very quickly her political uh, reporter's hat was on in terms <laughs> Sorry. of were they trying to cover up a leak or, or were they saying that they were making sure there was no question of a leak. You would have had, or would you, Richard Aldous, have had your historian's hat on watching this or do you just throw that hat into the other room when you're watching something like The Crown? I, th- I think it's both, actually. I mean, I, I agree completely with what Lee said, that the earlier series really were like historical dramas and that what we're talking about now uh, is something that, as you said in your introduction, that it, it, so many of the people are still alive. Uh, I do think as well, though, that it's actually built into the premise of the entire show that uh, when Peter Morgan came up with the idea of The Crown, it was it was based around these meetings that take place between the Prime Minister and the Monarch and literally 
literally nobody other than those two people knows what goes on in the room. So it's actually built into the whole premise, this idea that we are trying to extrapolate from things that we literally do not know anything about. Yeah, of course, that may be changing now because I, I, I notice in a lot of even uh, conferences or meetings with uh, different people from around the world, we get the audio of what's been said between the now King Charles III and, 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 and what's happening around the place with those sitting opposite him, Lise. Well, this is true. And I think this is a key element in this particular series is that it came at a point where the royals, well, obviously, notably uh, Diana and Charles, started actually cooperating with the, with the press mm. or friendly writers about what went on behind closed doors. And there was you know, more access became, you know, came available to the royals out and about and so on. So, you know, the, the sort of the mystique of we not knowing what exactly happened was fading by the time this series comes along yeah. and with it that sort of pattern of glamour and of course the sort of central a lot of the central characters were getting old, were, were getting a lot older i mean the sort of opening scene makes very clear that we're dealing with a much older queen yeah. and that almost presages of course you know her death in recent times let's have a listen to uh, uh, this is from the opening uh, quite early on Prince Philip Jonathan Price playing him at this point Imelda Staunton playing Queen Elizabeth II and they're talking about the, the, the royal yacht here, Britannia. The metaphor, the metaphor is, is not at all, it's not at all subtle, this well, you one. you can see it from space. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's listen. It shouldn't come as a surprise she's falling apart. She's a creature of another age. Effectively a World War II cruiser with soft furnishings. In many ways, she's obsolete. Don't say that. What are the options? Well, we've trouble with the main engine. Stubborn boilers out of service. Sentimentally, I think we'd all prefer to stick with her. I should say. But we have to be realistic about the cost of repairs when she's so obviously past her best. Are you seeing the Prime Minister in Balmoral next week? Yes. He's coming with his wife, Dora. No, that's not right. Nora. Norma. Well, you might want to bring it up with him then. I'll talk to the Admiral and come up with some figures. But it's the first time I've started to consider the unthinkable. What's that? A replacement. That's Jonathan Price as Prince Philip and Imelda Staunton as Queen Elizabeth and, and Richard Aldous. It's, it's very difficult, Richard, not to view Every word that comes out, particularly of Imelda Staunton's mouth as Queen Elizabeth II, to, to not view it through the prism of her recent death. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, you know, there there is an element in which I think maybe it's something that the show doesn't quite get right in this season. That, you know, after all, this is talking about the 1990s, that even when we get to the end of, of this season, it's 1997. She's got 25 years to go oh. yet. Um, some of some actually some of the, mo- the best moments of her reign, like the Golden Jubilee, for example, uh, are still ahead of her. So I, I do sometimes feel that, that the way that Imelda Storm and plays her, she almost has too much of an eye on the later Queen Elizabeth. And, and, and also, is, it seems bizarre to me that somebody who uh, that is recognised as being one of the hardest working uh, people, uh, certainly in the royal family and in public life, she actually spends most of this series just sitting at home on her, on her mm. sofa for pretty much all 10 episodes. 
Yeah, I suppose the 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 other the other uh, reality here is uh, uh, Lee's that this would have been shot, written, and in the can well before Queen Elizabeth's death. I would have thought certainly these early earlier uh, episodes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, no doubt about it. But obviously, just given her advanced years and so on, I suppose they always had to keep in mind the possibility that you know she mm. was going to die at some stage before yeah. the series finally you know rolls to its conclusion. And um, but. Yeah, I mean, I think I actually think which is completely right what he said about, you know, a lot of this, she, she, you know, for a very dynamic, active character, she did spend yeah. a lot of time, you know, and was always dimly lit and sort of gloomy rooms with sort of dusty chandeliers and so on. And, you know, and that was something I think that was along with the metaphors, which are remarkably clunky. Yeah. There were these sort of almost forced eff- efforts in some of the episodes to interject, you know, to inject glamour, which, yeah. you know, I thought was sort of a little bit kind of slightly awkward. However, the real, the real centre to the story here is uh, the, the Wales is Richard, the, the Princess of Wales as Diana was at the time and the Prince of Wales as Charles, King Charles was at, at that particular time. I mean, we, you, you both laughed at the soap opera idea earlier on, <laughs> but that particular marriage was, it really was played out in the glare of all kinds of publicity. It was rife. I mean, there have been several takes on it. Does the Crown give us some new angle on that particular story? I think there there are a couple of things that it it does that do give a, at least a somewhat fresh perspective. Uh, I mean, the first thing that is worth saying is that Elizabeth Debicki as Diana is absolutely brilliant in the series. I mean, it really is a a question of art imitating life. That she is the star of the royal family and she's the star of this show too. Uh, but I think the things that a lot of people uh, have been dimly aware about will be the whole Martin Bashir angle, the way in which uh, he manipulated her in order to get the interview. Um, and, and it has kind of real life consequences as well, because by making her so paranoid about the security services, that sense that, that all the people around her were in the pay of the, of the security services, it, that does actually contribute to her sense of paranoia. And ultimately, she will withdraw from security. Mm. And that's part of the reason we don't see it in this series. But that's part of the reason why she was reliant on the, the security of the Al-Fayeds in the, the tragic night when she died. Do we get as far as that interview leads? Do we get to that point where that interview, do we see any oh, of that happening? Uh, the Martin Bashir yeah. interview. Oh, absolutely. And again, that was another very um, brightly sketched um, metaphor where, you know, the interview took place in Guy Fawkes night and this whole thing about, you know, Parliament blown up and yeah. you know, that kind of thing. But again, and I mean, I totally agree. She, Elizabeth Debicki is absolutely, she's outstanding. She is extraordinary. I mean, to the point where you're, you, you, you're kind of slightly head melted looking at it. And do you know what I found actually really odd? Um, Dominic West, who plays Prince Charles in this. Now, to my mind, he's way too hot to play, you know, Prince Charles, who really is quite dorky and, you know, whatever. But the odd thing is, there's actually quite a lot of chemistry between the two characters in yeah. this, which, you know, is again, is a bit odd. You know, you could, you're kind of looking at two characters and saying, yeah, we know that they were completely, you know, unalike in real life, but there's a bit of a spark between them in, yeah. in this, which is quite interesting. Yeah. Well, let's have a listen to, um, and then the spark here is a little bit heading towards a bit of <laughs> angry. He's going to, he's going to uh, flame up into something totally different from love, I, 
think they're on holiday around Italy which is again this is all the whole the yacht is very much part of this opening sequence it, Charles played by Dominic West lays out the itinerary what it will be Elizabeth Debicki as Diana then has her requests uh, Harry played by Teddy Hawley has his request and William played by Senan West who I presume is the son of Dominic yes. West um, he, he also has has his uh, particular request in the midst of all of this as well so here they are on Britannia, on the yacht, talking about what might happen on this holiday. So the route I propose that we take is from Naples to Ischia, where Garibaldi spent some time recuperating after being injured in the Italian Wars of Independence, am I right? Yes, sir. Then on to Capri to see the ruins of the magnificent Villa Jovis, then down the Amalfi Coast onto Sicily with a final stop in Olbia on Sardinia, for a private view of the Museo Archaeologico there. And were there any other requests? Some beaches, perhaps. There will, of course, be beaches along the way. And water sports. And noisy water sports. And shopping. Shopping. It's possible some people might like to go shopping one day. Who? Show of hands, would anyone apart from Diana, like to go shopping. And the entire point of being on a beautiful yacht like this is that you can escape from hordes of people indulging in retailers' recreation. Me! I want to go shopping. Me too. Then we'll go shopping. Outnumbered, I think, for sure. Uh, Teddy Hawley as Harry, Senan West as William, uh, Dominic West as what was then, or who was then Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales. And we had Elizabeth the Bicky in there as Diana as well. All of that from season five of The Crown, which we're previewing this evening. Richard, I mean, obviously the, the personal difficulties that were going on there are very much part of this series. But we do get in the earlier se- se- section uh, meetings between Prince Charles and... Uh, John Major, who was the then Prime Minister. And the Prince Charles, as portrayed here, was very keen to get his bottom on the throne. Yeah, there's a, there's a real sense that comes across in this program of, of him just agitating all the time, both for modernisation, uh, but also literally to just shunt the Queen aside and for him to to, to accede to the throne as, as soon as possible. I think that, you know, you mentioned uh, John Major there played uh, brilliantly against, yeah. <laughs> cast against type, it has to be said, by Johnny Lee Miller. But, you know, I think this is where maybe I will put my historian's hat on, that I think there's a, there's a growing consensus that John Major was un, has been underestimated as a prime minister, that he was much better, much be, seen much better by historians than perhaps he was at the time. And that does actually come across quite well in the in the series where you see that he's actually quite a steely mm. character. He's got very good judgment uh, and, and really plays a central role in really trying to hold the monarchy together as all these uh, different combustible uh, elements uh, yeah. begin to explode. You're agreeing with the 
you're nodding in agreement with that, Lise. And you had picked out uh, Johnny Lee Miller as well. We're, we're talking about Sick Boy here. From, I know, it's the, maddest bit, it's the maddest bit of casting, but it actually works. It really does. And I, I do totally agree. Mm. And, you know, there was clearly in this series, whether it was it was refle- uh, represented in real life as well, that there was a great rapport between the Queen and, and John Major mm. as well, that, you know, they seem to get on very well. He, she kind of admired his piano low-key way of doing things. But, you know, at the end of the day, you can't get away with the sort of soap element of this. I mean, they even unflinchingly, you know, deal with Tampon Gate, which, of course, was one of the more, you know, cringy episodes in the entire Windsor soap. And they do it in a very, you know, kind of unflinching way. I mean, anybody who remembers that, it was a recorded conversation that was recorded by a radio, radio amateur back in 18... Uh, 1989. I know her reign was long, but it wasn't that long. Long um, between Charles and Camilla. Yeah. And which then was brought to the papers, but uh, and one would question whether it would happen today. They said, "Look, this is too explosive. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll put in the safe." Then three months after the the marriage actually split, uh, they, the, the couple split up. The tam- the the whole you know this the, the tapes were released mm. along with the transcript, and it's just a very, you know, pretty raunchy conversation yeah. between Charles Camilla and so on. But it's handled, you know, it's actually handled very well. And, you, you know, even though it's still utterly cringeworthy and Charles was lambasted at the time, I mean, they really thought it might finish him, yeah. finish his, you know, his, any of his ambitions to the throne. You know, the, his sort of the, the sort of sympathy towards Charles comes across very strongly in this, even right. as you're watching it from behind yeah. your hands, you know. All right. So... Do we? I, I've watched episode one and I have to say I'm hooked already. I'll be kind of binging on it when the time comes, I would guess. Where are you on it, Richard? Is it is it worth the watch from both the historical and the dramatic point of view? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely worth the watch. There are some great performances, particularly, as I say, from uh, Elizabeth Debicki and and also that one from Johnny Lee Miller. Yeah, yeah I, I, if I'm honest, I don't think it's up to the standard of the of the earlier seasons. But that said, it's still very, very, very enjoyable. Uh, Lise, you're nodding in agreement. And would, yeah. does season five set us up for season six, which will bring I us... I think very much yeah, it's, it's setting up for season six. And uh, yeah, I mean, there are some great moments. There's a few episodes, I think, that kind of drag and are a bit unnecessary. But... Um, yeah, overall, it's to get out the popcorn and, you know, off we go again. And enjoy yourselves. OK, <laughs> Richard, uh, Richard Alice and Lisa, and thank you so much for, for that preview of season five of The Crown. It starts on Netflix this Wednesday. In her award-winning book, A Ghost in the Throat, Therin the Grefa explores the life of Eileen Dovni Hunnell, who wrote the famous Queen of Arthur Lyra. The book reflects on Eileen's life, her creativity and writing, but also Therin the Grefa's own life and formation. It's a twin story of female art. Now, the filmmaker, Kieran McCormack, has made a feature documentary about Therin the Grefa herself and her creative process called Ashleen Trinielov, Clouded Reveries. It was filmed in locations which are key to Durin's poetry and writing, her grandmother's house in Clare, Cork City, University College Cork, Durin's own home, and Kilcray, a sacred place central to the story of Eileen Doof. Delighted to be joined, Durin the Grefa, to Durin Haul Ekorki, Agus Sturehor on Scanon, Ashleen Trinielov, or Clouded Reviews, Kieran Akamk, Atan Akalum, the studio in Blackclear. Durin, I come to you first. You tell an absolutely wonderful story at the beginning of the documentary about your your grandfather, uh, 
in and around the time of his death and basically the birth of there in the Grefa Villa. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> life can be very strange and I always feel a little bit embarrassed when people ask me how was it that I happened to become a writer because it is kind of quite quite a, a strange story, I think. But it was at the time that my grandfather was passing away um, all our family was called to be near him as uh, as that was happening. And um, he was one of those lovely people who cultivates a really special relationship with everyone he runs into. So all of us grandchildren had a really close bond with him. And I had traveled up from Cork with my baby um, to be there. But when we got the call to come in in the middle of the night, um, it was kind of felt that it wouldn't really be appropriate to have a baby there. And I can totally understand mm. that, you know, but um, it meant that I was in my aunt's house on my own with the baby and he was falling asleep. And as my eyes were closing, this these lines of poetry came to me, Sean. And um, I mean, I had never been the kind of person who would try to write a poem or anything like that so it really startled me and, and actually really shocked me but as soon as the baby fell asleep I hopped up from the bed um, went and wrote these lines of poetry and 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 it continued to kind of flow once I put pen to paper um, and so that was the first poem that I ever composed and I do have a strong sense of the act of poetry, the act of writing as being like a gift and it brings me close to my grandfather. Mm. It also brings me close to kind of the realm of the dead, if we can call it yes. that. I mean, for yeah. whatever reason, that's where I'm drawn very often in my writing. Do you remember those? Do you remember those opening lines, even in their rawest form as they came to you? Oh, oh, listen, I have them written down, but I'd be a bit too embarrassed to share them. I, what I can say is that they were about ill on Clara and I still haven't been there. And I just feel like, oh, my God, if this was uh, if my life was if I was actually living a film, not just a film Kira had made, <laughs> that would be like I would go to ill on Clara. Something exciting would definitely happen. Right. I still haven't done it, though. <laughs> All right. That's that. that that's fair enough. Kira, um, when when you heard that story as a director, you must have get the tape running quick before this story ends. It's an extraordinary story. Yeah, no, it's incredible, and um, I'm I suppose you know um, as a filmmaker, like to hear Darren speak in that way. She's such a visual writer mm. and storyteller. Um, and I suppose I was drawn to her work through the poetry like in the first place and, um, um, you know, uh, uh, throughout the process of making the film, I had kind of kept returning to it in my mind that, you know, I have to do such a visual writer justice in, in yeah. you know, because she writes so um, visually. Yeah. But before we get the story from Darren, what struck me was your opening kind of, it's a totally silent section, in fact, where Darren is sitting at, if you don't mind us talking about you <laughs> in your presence, Darren. And by the way, I should have Conti Corky at Neil to the studio and Thought a Muisa Conti, a Muifin Tua. 
Oh, yeah. A lot of Cork City is underwater, unfortunately, this yeah, evening. Right. Well, I think the flood might be subsiding now. So, yeah, Tom, a kind to Mali. I'm, I'm speaking from home. Just uh, save more than her. Fair enough, fair enough. Would you better clarify that because the neighbours will be given out to us for saying we're in the studio. But uh, <laughs> going back to that opening sequence, that opening shot that you have, Kira, it's Darren sitting at her desk and the fingers twitching. Uh, are they going to type something onto the uh, to the laptop or not? But what struck me was this kind of almost they're in mouthing uh, as if words were about. To, I'm thinking of the ghost in the throat, as if the words were forming in her throat and and coming out. Was that something that happened? I probably in the middle of the shoot somewhere was it? Yeah, again, yeah, that was something that just happened. I mean, it was all about I suppose spending time and having the time together. And uh, I spoke to Darren about yeah, I'd like to you know film maybe mm. a scene with you working, and that's one thing that struck me about Darren as well. Throughout when we're filming, she's always working. So um, we, you know, even mm. in between takes or, you know, during you'd be writing away or working on something. And so when we had the moment of actually filming, you know, um, a scene of Darren working in a pump, that was just a wonderful moment, you know, in silence and just the beat and beating out the... Um, yeah, is is, is 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 that how it works? Because it really struck me, particularly because of the ghost in uh, the, the, a ghost in, in the throat, you know, that it was almost as if the words were, were somewhere inside you there and you were trying to will them from out from inside you onto the fingers and onto the laptop to get them onto the, the screen and onto the page. I mean, there's a little bit of that. It's it's a very physical process for me, the act of writing. I, I, I speak everything out loud over and over and over again as I'm writing it. Mm. So, like, it, the only thing I would have adjusted as that was being filmed was if I was totally on my own, I would have been speaking it completely out loud, <laughs> you know. But <laughs> in that scene, I'm kind of whispering it just because yeah. I don't want to inflict the raw writing <laughs> on everyone around us. But, yeah, I beat out rhythm of the sentences, whether prose or poetry, and I speak mm. it out loud. So it's it's a really um, physical, embodied kind of a process. And and it's important to say as well, I think, that I couldn't have trusted really just anyone with filming me in the act of writing a poem. And I think it's, it's testimony to Kira and to the amazing team that she had with her um, and how... Um, they cultivated a relationship of great trust with me as their subject, you know, and, and that was magnificent for me to participate mm. in. And and that's, as I say, a testimony to Kira and her gifts as a filmmaker that I was able to do that. You refer to uh, uh, Chalk the Shanwater, May Kreemachid, Kreemachid, that the heart of my writing, how important a place was it for you? I, and it, it, it still is for you, I get the impression, Dylan. Yeah, well, this is my um, this is my nana May, who who would be my my grandmother at home in Clare, um, and oh sure, I was just mad about her, and and again, a, um, a person who had a really lovely relationship with children, and always had a clatter of us grandchildren running around her house, and the door was always open to us, and I had a very strong sense always growing up of of belonging that she mm. cultivated that doesn't happen by accident I think you only realize that as an adult that that doesn't happen by accident that sense of this is where I belong it, mm. as adults we kind of almost mediate that for children and we reinforce it for them and she did that in a very um 
beautiful, unobtrusive way. We all felt great belonging. We all felt comfortable with her. And her home was a great part of that. It was a very old house. Um, and it, stand, it stood on, on land that my uncle Brendan still farms. And, and it's a beautiful, happy place and still is now. And um, the during the making of this film, we we were welcomed in there to record. And, I, you know, it's funny when you put someone like me in a place like that, which is so much of Kira's process, I think, in making this film, bringing me to different places from which writing has bubbled yeah. up for me in the past and sitting me in them and, and, and just asking me, what is it about this place that's so special? And it draws you inwards, but also outwards. Like if someone asks you that, if someone puts you in a place that's so important to you and asks you those kind of questions, you surprise yourself by the yeah. depth of the response that comes up. So I felt like that process of dialogue really revealed oh. a lot for me. Oh, Kieran, near Kulame, Kesh the one, Uche. Um, now, Davina Keshna and Neil Shitz gone on. We don't hear the questions in, in the film itself. Uh, but I'm guessing once you once you tipped there in at all, the, the language flowed out of her and, and you don't stumble once in any sentence that no. she makes, Kira. No, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a, an editor's dream and uh, as well, because, yeah, we... Um, yeah. I had had no trouble in that department, but yeah, just getting back to what uh, Duran was saying there about being in her grandmother's house, it was a lot of it is about having time and kind of, I suppose, um, building up the trust as well. As yeah. you said, cause we didn't know each other before, so that's extraordinary. I presumed you were long time friends because I thought, but they must know each other. And at that time, it was something that Duran keeps talking about in the film as well. Yeah, yeah. and um, we spent a lot of time, you know, with her yeah. her family. I better finish up. Um, I'd love to talk even more, but it's been an absolutely beautiful film. But I want to finish with um, with you, Darren. Tadon Agat doing Lunula. And and it's the end. Don knows the kid and 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 the kid Agat. We yeah yeah Akshaw Halishan Lag and Gwilgan Lara Jernak we go with Lara Birla Vian so Dimmik and Kate Lag and Ostray Achtashi and Shahanishk and this is just a short a really short little poem and it's a poem of hope um and it it began when I first came across the word for those pale marks that we often have at the base of of our fingernails and that word became the title of this poem which is Lonyle. Is ger hepper and law mar a hep er a hollis. Beach is ger gale and spear a reached on nerchus. I goroin or ningna, lunreen galloin dochish. De nyalacha beeducha a lassen gak grime. Gilla nach mochfer, few in nerchus nan rhyme. Though it grew dark. And darker, how could we despair when we remembered the crescents in each fingernail? Ten little moons to glimmer our grip, slips of brightness that persist, holding our hands even in darkness. 
Um, Lunula, Haskellica, August Amerla, Leta, Egg, Down in the Grave, on Shin. And the documentary that we've been speaking about is currently where we can get it in at the IFI, the Lighthouse, Paula, Selected Cinemas Nationwide is where we'll get it, Kiria. Yeah. Absolutely, and QFT in Belfast and the Triscoll in Cork as well, from, from the 11th. From the 11th. Well, Fans of Cowboy Junkies will be delighted at the prospect of seeing them once again in Ireland next week. Next Thursday, in fact, November the 17th, they bring their blues-tinged alt-country sound to the National Concert Hall in a performance that will include, no doubt, selections from their 2018 covers album, Songs of the Recollections. We'll be speaking to the founding members, Margot and Michael Timmons, shortly. But first, here's their interpretation of the Lou Reed classic, Sweet Jane. was the Cowboy Junkies with their cover of Sweet Jane. Now, although that Velvet Underground song has had many covers, Lou Reed said the Cowboy Junkies version was undoubtedly the best. Now, the Canadian alt-country group are back on the road and as part of their long-awaited world tour, they are coming to Dublin. Formed in 1985, Cowboy Junkies gained worldwide recognition with their second album, The Trinity Session, which brought a mix of blues, country, folk, jazz and rock to their group growing cult following. Their recent offering, Songs of the Recollection, is a diverse covers album with their interpretation on songs from their own disparate tastes and influences. Looking ahead to the performance at the National Concert Hall on November the 17th, delighted to be joined on Arena this evening by one half of the group, Margot and Michael Timmons of Cowboy Junkies. Margot, let me start with you. I mean, obviously we're coming out of this period when nobody was going anywhere on tour. You you have been out on the road a bit uh, so far. How has it been being back out there? Fantastic. <laughs> uh, we were just so ready to get back on the road and so grateful to, to get out there again. Um, but I have to admit, at the beginning, it was a little bit scary. Mm. Um, but we found our, our groove again and, and it's like we haven't taken any time off. So, so it's, 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 it was, um, I, I really, truly missed touring during COVID. It was that was surprising. I didn't think I'd miss it that much, but I did. <laughs> and I know um, Margo mentioning there that it was kind of scary going out. And Michael, I know that I heard you, I read about you saying something similar. What was what was the anxiety around going back out? Was it related to the pandemic itself or was it, gee, we, we, have, to, we have to get back out in front, in front of all these people again and, and do the business? Yeah, it was sort of a combination of both. Um, you know, the, just going out there with... And especially touring in the States, you know, where every state has a different sort of policy for towards COVID and a different attitude. And, and um, you know, being in a room with a lot of people, you you know, for after a year or a year and a half of just being with your own family in your own house and then getting into a, a, a room full of people 
screaming, <laughs> screaming at you. It's kind of, it's kind of uh, intense. And then just for the band, just musically, you know, we, we, we never have really taken time off the road. This break, this force break has been the longest we've ever been off the road in 35 years. So, um, you know, and you, we have a certain flow to what we do. And uh, we felt before COVID, we had a really nice uh, live flow going with the band and the communication between us all. So it was just um, trying to get that back, you know, just mm. get, get your, your muscle memory back and your fingers and how you do this and the confidence and, and all that. It was, just a, it was just kind of on many different levels, it was very uh, anxiety provoking. Yeah, and, and Marco, that idea of getting the flow back, I suppose it's difficult to do it um, in, in, a non, in, in a situation where you don't have a live audience in front of you. Did you do any of the lockdown stuff? I mean, did you try to do performances from home? Did you do any of that, of that kind of thing? Not really. Uh, we did one, we were writing an album and um, we did one sort of video release of that, but not really. You know, that online, for me, it's, it's the connection between um, the audience and us that, that um, inspires me. So that, that online playing just doesn't do it for me. You know, I don't quite know. I don't, I don't get it. Um, so, so yeah, I, even as a fan, I don't understand it. You know, I tried to watch some of it, the stuff that was going on. And, and it's just, you know, live is live. You've got to feel the room and be yeah. with people and feel the people, for me anyway. And um, so, no, we, we didn't do much of it. We just did this, that one video of, um, of the new material. And I guess it, it when you when you talk about that 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 communication between the people in front of you in the room when you're performing, how does that feed into say something like the the, the songs of the Recollection album, where we, we have songs from the likes of Neil Young, Bob Dylan, The Cure, Graham Parsons, The Rolling Stones, David Bowie is in there too. Is that a reflection of influences? Is it songs that you think your following might like? What exactly is in the, in, in in the choosing of those songs, Margo? Well. You know, I, I, I've always said that before you become a musician, you're a fan. You know, we grew up with record collections and, and going to see bands. And these people um, inspired our lives, helped us make decisions, guided us, um, maybe in some ways destroyed us, whatever. You know, music has, has such power for us. So when you become a musician and then suddenly you, you're, you're choosing songs, you're definitely choosing songs of people that... That, that gave you that, get that, that brought you to this point. And um, it's a way of saying thank you. It's a way of um, exploring uh, that artist's music a little bit deeper. Um, so there's a lot of things, but mainly the first thing is, yes, you have to love the musician and you have to love the song. When it came, Michael, then to David Bowie's uh, uh, Five Years, which is on Songs of the Recollection, was there was there something specific there? You know, who came to the table with that? Or did, did you all sit down together and say, yeah, let's do that? Do you remember the time we got the album or whatever it was? Well, I think I, I think it was it, you know, we, we put that song together for a show we were doing. We were doing this. Uh, this um, small club residency with a whole bunch of artists off our label, and we were—they were all themed sets. And one of the one of the themes set was um, Dead Heroes. <laughs> so, so Boy had just died, and uh, so we thought, well, let's do a David Boy song, and we ne- we'd never done one before. Um, so I, I think I probably brought five years in. To me, you know, Ziggy Stardust is, is could easily be my favorite record of all time. When I think about it, it's mm. hard—it's hard to do that, but it certainly is up there. And 
you know, the way that it, you know, it being the opening track of Ziggy Stardust, it, there's in you know, the way it fades in, there's just something so dramatic and momentous about that song coming in. So, um, it, 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 it was a challenge for us, you know, and uh, we, we thought, you know, to, to, to do this song justice, we'll see if we can pull it off. So we approached it and we played it that night and we got a great reaction from the audience on it. And uh, Margo was able to really dig into it. And uh, so, you know, we, we kept it in our set and it, it had been in our set for a while before we uh, f- before we yeah. put it on the record. Well, let's have a listen to how it turned out on the record itself and the, the David Bowie song, Five Years, from Songs of the Recollection from Cowboy Junkies. Pushing through the market square So many mothers sighing News just come over We had five years left to cry To cram so many things to store Everything in there And all the fat skinny people So there we have Five Years, the David Bowie song in the version that we get on Songs of the Recollection. New album from Cowboy Junkies and delighted that Margo and Michael Timmons of Cowboy Junkies with us this evening ahead of their appearance at the National Concert Hall on, on November the 17th. I, I, I don't know what it's like for the other guys in the band, Margo, but I'm going to ask you this because you're the one that has to kind of front these songs. And, you know, when you're, when you're thinking of somebody like Bowie, indeed any of the artists that are, that are here, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, you know, what is that balance for you of serving the song and, and the original artist, but also making it your own and putting your own self into it in some way as well? Well, that's the trick. And that's a big one. You know, that, that five years was a big yeah. challenge <laughs> uh, because it's such a, you know, iconic song for so many people and um you know a lot of cover songs that we try don't ever really make it out of our studio and and they don't come out of the studio because sure they sound fine sure i can sing it you know i have a nice voice i can sing a song and the boys can play the music but if there isn't something that we feel we've brought to the song some sort of uh something of our own then there's no point Mm. and and i i prefer the word reinterpretation than cover because that's what we're trying to do and uh, so if it just sounds like a cover, we're just doing it, it it's not worth it. And and so, I mean, I, I think when I take on a song like Five Years, I'm coming at it from my perspective. You know, I'm looking, I have a 19-year-old son who... I look at his future and I can't I can't see the world he's going to be in and it scares me. So that's how I went into the song was just this this mm. as a mom and maybe a little bit more dramatic or <laughs> um than may than than boy would have done it but um you know I'm not a young man I'm a, I'm an older woman <laughs> with a boy. You just have to find your way in that that's not always easy. No, and I mean, I, I, I kind of want. I'm not used to be referred to as as a trick, but there's a, obviously there's a lot more involved with it than just being tricky. It takes a lot of real exploration, which is what we get in in your yeah. version of the song. Yeah, that song, those songs, you know, those ones, those iconic songs. People have such a is sort of stamped in their brains um, as it is in mine. So you know, it's hard to sort of 
try to veer away from from the original and um and that that um that happens a lot you just sort of they end up sounding like the original. <laughs> What's the point? Let's finish up with with all that reckoning. Part one, uh, the song. Maybe you'd you'd open up the inner workings of this song for me before we listen. Whoa, you're you're getting into a heavy song. Uh, it, it's one of my favorite songs uh, as far as the from the writing point of view goes, and and I love the way it came off. Um, I think mainly because Margot kind of nailed the song. Uh, we, we've we've been playing it a lot, and we play it pretty much every night because it's just uh, it's a it's a it's a atmospheric and it's a bit of a showstopper as far as you know Margot's presentation of it. Um, it's really a song about relationships, about a long long time relationships and how they go through various phases uh, from very positive to very distant and and troubled, and and it's about getting through those getting through those walls and getting through that that getting through the history of a relationship to a to a place that's fresh and new. Listen, Margot, Michael, it's lovely to speak with you this evening. Thanks so much for your time and hope the, the gig goes well for you in the concert hall. Thanks very much for being here. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Margot and Michael Timmons there. And let's finish up with All That Reckoning, part one. Now I slept With my arms around you My legs was bound She certainly nails the song. I'm sure you'll hear out in full all that reckoning part one uh, at the concert hall on November the 17th. That's Cowboy Junkies. uh, And we were speaking with Michael and Margot Timmons. Full details of their event on Thursday week, November the 17th, nch.ie.